You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies that actors were. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. We have just come back from the American Black Film Festival, which just celebrated its 27th year. And we interviewed two amazing black female directors, which are going to be featured on this week's podcast. First up is director Kelly Colley. She directed, produced, and starred in the original feature film, I'm Fine, Thanks for Asking, which was an early pick for narrative competition at the 2021 South by Southwest Film Festival. It went on to win a special jury recognition for multi-hyphenate storyteller, an award they created for her. She recently finished directing the feature film Jagged Mind, which made its world premiere at ABFF this past weekend and is currently now streaming on Hulu. In our second segment, we welcome Numa Perrier. She's a Haitian American actress, artist, director, writer, and producer. The former co founder of Black and Sexy TV, she made her debut film with Jezebel, which premiered at South by Southwest in 2019. You can catch an old interview with Black Girl Nerds and Numa about that back in the archives. She also received accolades as well from the American Black Film Festival for that film, as well as the Indie Memphis Film Festival. Perrier's first studio film, The Perfect Find, stars and is co-produced by Gabrielle Union and is set to premiere on June 23rd. It made its premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival before its wide release on Netflix. The film is based on a book by Tia Williams and adapted by Lee Davenport. It follows a woman in her 40s starting a new career only to fall for a much younger man who is also her boss's son. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this two-part episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast featuring directors Kelly Colley and Numa Perrier. Just a quick production note, the volume is actually really low. I had no idea that my recording levels were not at its normal capacity when I recorded this interview with Kelly, so please turn up your volume levels on this one. I do apologize in advance. (laughs) I I was so, like, well, this is my first genre movie. So I didn't know. I didn't know how it'd be received. And, I was, and, and black people ain't put in genre movies like that. So yeah. how? So then how does our audience respond to it? I was hoping that they would respond to it positively, and they did, thank God. But I didn't know because that's one of the things that we're not in that much yeah. in film are, like, the genre films. And so you know, I was pushing for there to be a black lead and um, – 
it really, I mean, Maisie did such a great job, and it, it worked out great. And I, it's, it makes me happy to come home to ABFF because ABFF was one of the first festivals that ever screened any of my movies, like my shorts, when I was just learning, when I was just starting out. And mm. so to come home with a studio feature, to be like, yeah, you're make me cry. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah, beautiful. It is. It yeah. is. And, and this is, I'm glad you mentioned genre film and that you don't see a lot of us in that because mm. I feel like this is a good time to be making these kind of films because it feels like it, there is a renaissance happening. Yeah. Like your film is here at ABFF. We've got the blackening. That's the blackening. Last year we had the nanny. Uh, Manny. We have yes, it's happening. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, we talked to Bomani J Story at Black Girl Nerds, who mm-hmm. has the angry black girl in her monster. Yes, yeah. <laughs> what, what's your feelings around that? That do you think that there is a renaissance happening in the black oh, horror we, genre? Oh, girl, we coming for them. <laughs> we coming. We coming. You know, once you let us in the door, it's over. We take over everything. We like and we make it better. But um, yeah, I I'm so happy to see that shift. And you know what I'm most happy about is I'm happy to see that we are stepping into our own uniqueness and personalities because oftentimes black people are seen as a monolith. And when it comes to media, we are fed the same type of stories, the same type of cinematography, the same type of, it just, it's, it's like cookie cutter. Right. Because you know, oftentimes studios are nervous about steering away from what they know works. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the secret is, we're not all the same. Guess what? Exactly. Yeah. So it's exciting to see that we're allowing ourselves to be weird. Yes. To be in. That. Yeah. And weird is a good word to me. I love it when people call me weird. Yeah. Like, it's like, great. I'm, I'm different. different. <laughs> Neat, quirky. I love it. Yeah. That's, that's what we all represent at mm-hmm. Black Girl Nerds. Um, <laughs> This film offers a mystical element mixed in with a dramatic thriller, and it also tackles some serious issues around domestic violence. Yes. How do you, how did you even come across this very unique project? Well, uh, my film, I'm Fine Thanks for Asking, won at South by Southwest. And when it won, it got the attention of one of the 20th digital executives, who I happened to go to USC with, Um, but when she saw that I won, she went to her team when they were looking for a director and said, hey, look, I know someone who just did really well with her first feature. We might want to bring her in. Now, the job wasn't mine. <laughs> I still had to work for it. And uh, so I had to pitch on it. And I, I didn't think I was going to get the job mm. because I changed a lot of key things in the script that I was given. The original script was took place in New York. Um, it was at a Manhattan art gallery, and you know what's in there. It's just like it's white art, <laughs> and um, and then it was um, the the two women read as white, mm. and so I went into that pitch like <laughs> saying, you know what, we've we've seen this before. We might not have seen the two women part before, but we've seen the New York Manhattan art gallery and all that before, and I was like, if we're going to shoot in. New York, then we need to bring it to Harlem. I've, I've been to tons of art galleries that feature African-American, Afro-Caribbean, just any type of people of color art, right? Yeah. And, uh, but I said, 
I don't feel that this movie should be in New York. I feel like we need to ground it somewhere where people believe in magic so that when people watch this movie, they can feel like just maybe this could happen. And so I originally said New Orleans and uh, they, they loved that. And so then I said that I also think that the main character should be, be black, be African-American, Afro-Caribbean, something, but because I was leaning into the tension of just visually seeing an interracial couple. Mm-hmm. I come from an interracial background and I remember what it was like when my parents would walk out on the streets together, right? And yeah. I remember like nobody would do anything aggressively, but boy, those side eyes, like, oh, oh, she with him, he with her. <laughs> oh, that that's what's going on. Oh, they got kids? Okay. You know, and it's so that being in the United States there is that unspoken tension, unfortunately. And of course, you know, we're growing as a people, but it's still there. So I wanted to lean into that a bit and have our, our lead be black. And the, stu- the great thing is that the studio heard me. Mm-hmm. Like that, if that doesn't show positive change in our industry, I don't know what does. Like to move it away from something that was reading, a script that was reading as traditionally another traditionally white story and no offense to it, there's just a lot of them already. Um, and then for them to hear me and say, you know what, let's do that. And when we were supposed to be in New Orleans, but for logistical reasons, they were moving it to Miami. And then that's when I said, um, let's do it in Little Haiti because I spent a, my background's in anthropology and film from Howard University. Mm. H U, you know, to all my Howard Bison <laughs> out there. So, um, so I really cared about paying attention to the culture, making sure things are depicted properly, making sure we cast authentically, mm. and so did my executives, which I really appreciated. I also graduated from an HBCU, Norfolk State. Norfolk, but I love Norfolk. Do you know I just I just finished shooting the um, Kimba Smith story from Hampton. Okay. So I don't know if you know of this, but in the 90s, there was a girl named Kimba Smith uh-huh. who went to Hampton University. Her parents actually went to Norfolk, but they're all like Virginia. Yeah. And um, she was started dating this guy that she thought was like a good dude who would come up to Hampton's campus. And anyway, he was a drug dealer and she didn't realize till too late and she got he got killed and she got charged for his crimes because of mandatory minimum sentencing and they gave her this girl was a great student in high school she grew up very sheltered like suburban lived off a lake like she never knew anything outside of her like small town Mm -hmm. and they gave her 24 and a half year sentence Yeah, so anyway, when I think about um, those areas, her parents went to Norfolk. Wow. Yeah, not to make it sad, but you just go and we were um, depicting those areas in the movie. Wow, wow, yeah, that that definitely needs to go on the screen, that story. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought up location because Mm -hmm. Jagged Mind does take place in Miami. And we are here, right? Yes, now yes, and that great. Yeah, so it, I, I was curious. You kind of touched on it a little bit mm-hmm. about the logistics, and, and it's also been filmed in Little Haiti. But yes, wh- why specifically Miami was the choice for why you shot the film there? It was logistical reasons mm-hmm. um, for financing, mm-hmm. and so that's why we were brought here. But um, 
the little Haiti, there was, that was just it for me. If we were moving from New Orleans to Miami, we had to shoot in little Haiti and nowhere else. Right. Um, because New Orleans, it's the closest thing to New Orleans to me because the Haitian influence in New Orleans, Louisiana in general, is very, very strong. And um, they have a very long history in New Orleans. And so I, that was the next closest thing to what I had originally envisioned. And then I called Jimmy Jean-Louis, who I've been working with for a very long time, to see if he'd come on. Because we had to add another character. Because mm. if we were going to incorporate Haitian culture now, we had to be very careful of the, the voodoo depictions because it could easily be, okay, it's, it's, it's the voodoo that's doing this bad magic. And, mm -hmm. and it's not. This magic, this stone magic is some other blood magic from wherever else. It's not that. But immediately you say Haitian, people are going to be like, ah, <laughs> you know, voodoo. Right. right. So we had to add a character, which was Jimmy's character, and then make Rose's character Haitian to utilize the implicit biases that the audience was already going to have mm -hmm. about being in Little Haiti, lean into it, but use the voodoo, so don't run from it, but use it for good, which usually isn't depicted in film, unfortunately, and it should be because it's a religion to be respected like any other religion. Exactly. And so with that, um, we the, the music that Jean-Yves Bontemps did, um, with the drumming, whenever you saw a warning happening or anyone trying to help our character, like Jimmy's character, Papa Just, and um, Shane's character, uh, Rose, you'd hear that drumming, you'd hear the music, you'd hear the Haitian um, wails, because we had um, Paul Beauvoir, who's um, a big Haitian musician, do some of the vocals. On it, it just, we, we had a whole family. But yes, that's how we got to Little Haiti is because those things are super important to me of location where what haven't we seen on the screen that much too what haven't we heard on the screen mm -hmm. and that's why it was also important to cast authentically with shane and jimmy because i wanted them to speak creole haitian creole and i didn't want to subtitle it i wanted them to just talk and that was my wink to the haitian community to say thank you for letting us come in here you matter you <laughs> like you're you, you you're to be respected and um, so I, that's one of my favorite scenes when when Jimmy and Shane are fussing at each other in Creole. Right. Like <laughs> yeah, that was done so beautifully. I really Thank respect you. how you did this project. And I mentioned before how this is a very unique project because there's so many different elements um, at play from the mysticism, the queer interracial relationship, yeah. um, and then the thriller moments that yeah. we see play out. Yeah. So what parts of the script really stood out to you the most? My favorite scene in the whole movie is when Billy is trying to find out about Rose. Like, it's after the hospital, and she's trying to figure things out. I love the way we shot it. I love our little wonder in there. I love um, the fight. <laughs> I love Because you're finally seeing Alex break. Yeah, those scenes were intense. Yeah, as fun in my, and I can talk about it because it's in the trailer. So, um, yes. <laughs> but it's it's one of my favorite uh, scenes. And then one of my favorite shots is what I call the ratatouille. And that's that repetitive looping shot that we, we did. And the, right. 
the way where it's sort of matching in all these locations, all these different time periods that she had been through. And the way we did that is we had to be extremely precise um, in our measurements, the length of our dolly tracks, the height of the camera, the movement of the actor, the timing of the dolly pull had to be just right to match all of those together. And it worked. And you should have seen that the team loved when we did the Ratatouille. And I call it the Ratatouille because I watched Ratatouille, the animation. Yeah, that's what I thought of immediately when you said that. Yes. Term. And, you know, everyone keeps asking me, what inspired you? Was it Rosemary's Baby? Was it this and that? And I'm like, uh, Ratatouille. <laughs> and so there's a shot in there where it starts on the chef and it kind of whips out to the critic. And the way that they went from place to place, but the eye never moved in the edit, I was like, oh, I want to do that in a live action sequence, but more times repetitively. So I knew that that was the vision I wanted um, in the looping. And Rasa uh, Parton, our DP, was, he just executed it so well and his team, it, it, it looks great. So that's one of my favorite shots that you see towards the end of the movie. Of, uh, you, you're teased with it throughout, but towards the end, you see the culmination of all the lives that she was in, and it's just, it's beautiful to me. Would you consider yourself more of a technical director? I love to know as much technical things as I can. Um, I love the camera I used to shoot, and um, but I stopped and started writing and directing more. Mm. Um, I used to edit a lot <laughs> on Premiere. I don't know what it is about Avid. I was, I, I was gonna ask, Avid listen, or Premiere? Listen, I, I used to use Avid when I was in film school. So, so. they make you, that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, they have Premiere there, but for us at USC, we were required to cut on Avid. Yep. And so, but it's the industry standard and I, and I get it, but I actually started editing on Final Cut. Final Cut, yep, Final Cut. And then when Final Cut kind of faded out because they went to Final Cut 10, Mm. And it, which made it like a prosumery type of thing. Then everyone started swinging over to Premiere. Yeah. And Premiere was pretty much the same. In fact, Final Cut's template, if I recall, was actually based off of Premiere. Premiere's been around a long time. It has. And then Final Cut kind of took over, and then it kind of faded, and then Premiere came back. And it's the same kind of stroke. He's like, if you want to cut, you use a C on one, and then a B for blade on the other. So they're like very similar um, in the way the shortcuts are, um, the way the editing format is, the template, the interface. Mm -hmm. um, Avid is like learning another language to yeah. me. It's like Final Cut and Premiere are like Latin languages, mm -hmm. right? Okay, you speak Spanish, you might be able to learn Italian. We could do this, right? <laughs> Avid is like learning Mandarin to me. And it's like, you can, yes, yes, you can, but you need to spend the time. Yeah. And so um, I have cut on that, but I I lean back over to Premiere because that's where I, that's my native tongue. Yeah, <laughs> and it's more user-friendly, so I, yeah. I, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, you're an actor mm -hmm. as well, and you make an appearance in <laughs> Your hostess in there. I made my little cameo. Your little cameo. Right this way, miss. <laughs> um, and and you're, you're no stranger to acting in your own projects mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Because um, thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah. So is this something that's always intentional 
for you as a performer, as a creative yeah, artist? I've, I've always acted. So I was in the union before I even went to film school. and I But I did theater. So I performed a lot um, like at the Kirk Douglas Theater, which um, is a beautiful theater in Culver City and then other um, theaters around town. And then I drifted away from it and started writing and directing more. And then when I got into USC, I focused on writing and directing more. But then I just always loved acting. And when the pandemic happened and I decided to make I'm Fine, Thanks for Asking, it's like the universe put me back into it because there was no other choice. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I love it so much and I think I was kind of running from it and being like, I'm a filmmaker now, I can't do both. And that's not true. You can, you can 100% do whatever you want. There are no rules, but people love to like create boxes for everyone and I say, mm -hmm. break the box. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so we couldn't, it was like the heart of the pandemic when we were filming that and I could not cast because I could not bring, it was one thing asking my friends to you know dp and edit and do all that because we all went to film school together i know them so we can all assume that risk because it's at the time that no one really understood it's when we were wiping down all our groceries because we thought it was everywhere like right. it was it was at the scary <laughs> time that we were shooting and um i we couldn't cast so i told everybody listen we all have to act in this like all of us and it was nerve-wracking for a, a few that were normally behind the camera, but we all did it, and then that kind of solidified me getting officially, I'd always been, but really officially acting again because I keep getting asked now, oh, will you act in this, and will you do this, and will you do that? And um, so that's very flattering to me because that means, like, oh, y'all think I can – you actually liked watching it because you know <laughs> you never know you'd be like do they like watching this film i don't know yeah so i love it though it makes me happy and i did have a moment where i was conforming mm -hmm. and thinking well if i am this then i can't do that and it's not true and that opportunity to make that film showed me that i can do everything i love Absolutely. We talked a little bit about, before we started recording, the color in this film. Yes. Which I absolutely love. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and we see the color resonate as well in the promo art. Yes. With these beautiful red hues mm -hmm. and blue hues. So was there some storytelling behind? Yeah, girl, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Colors? Thank you for noticing. <laughs> 100%. Um, I assigned blues and brighter colors to Billy. Mm. Um, because although she's blue, haha, I get it, because she's down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's still a happy person, and she's still vibrant. So if you look at her house, the colors like lean into like a green or a teal, or like, you know, there's still a little more vibrancy around her life. Like, yeah, she's struggling with what she thinks is early onset dementia and things like that, but she's still, a very lighthearted person who's very loving so I wanted color in her life um, now for Alex I wanted her more 
cold with before we get to the reds, right? Mm. So the so she had more metallic colors. And it's not because she's a mean person. I actually Alex is actually my favorite character. Mm. She's more complex. She's yes. I don't see her as bad. All she wants is to love and be loved. Now, her approach to it is unhealthy. <laughs> time looping somebody don't y'all time loop nobody okay so don't follow <laughs> alex but but what is her ultimate goal she wants the person she loves to be happy and every time she sees that she's made a mistake she loops it to try to fix it right but her whole goal is to make her happy now she's getting exhausted and more angry and more bitter because that magic is a darker magic and that's what it's supposed to do pull on you, pull on your energy. So all the color, all the life is being sucked out of her. Mm -hmm. So we stuck with grays and any type of metallics and blacks, and you don't see her in much color. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that red is her anger, her frustration, literally the blood magic that she's using. So that represented Alex. And another thing that some may or may not catch is very subtle is that anyone who has touched that stone, the color in their life gets sucked out, even if they're trying to fight it. So Alex is in the more black and whites and metallics. If you look at Rose, she's in black and white when we meet her. Now she has a little bit of color on her headband to show that she's trying to do right and get back to where she is, but she has been affected by that magic too. And at the end look at Billy's dress and see what she's wearing oh wow what colors is she in yeah you have to watch the movie to find out you do <laughs> <laughs> um I, my, my last question to you Jagged Mind releases this week on Hulu which of course we're all excited about <laughs> what what's next for you oh well I told you I have the um the film called Kimba that is coming out with um MPI and BET and but it, we're we've just finished it and now we're moving into uh, festivals and I think BET will either release it at the end of the year or at the top of next year I'm not sure yet I guess it just depends on the festival circuits and then I have another film called Shadow Dance that is <laughs> I love this it's gonna be so exciting it takes place in New York at, with Alvin Ailey Ballet they're supporting it, which is great. And the character is this young black male who was taught ballet by his mother. And his mother has died um, when he was young. And she always wanted to be an Alvin Ailey, but she never quite made it. And so he has carried on the ballet, but he has a very machismo New York City cop father who loves him and loved his mother dearly, but just wants him to go to school, put down that ballet stuff, and focus. And uh, another element is that he, our lead character is gay, but he's hiding it intensely in that environment. And, um, and then there's a catalyst in which he is found out and put out on the streets which is addressing the large issue of homelessness in our LGBTQ plus community. A lot of um, youth 
are out on the streets because their families won't accept them for who they are and it's not talked about enough so that's one of the elements I really love about this film is that it's not about that but it's definitely addressing it and showing it and of the displacement of so many of our youth and so this film is we're supposed to start in the fall but you know with the strike and everything going on right. I'm not, I don't know what's <laughs> happening just yet but that that's on the radar and I'm really excited about it because it's to me it's like a black swan and there's a yeah moment in there that um one of my favorite musicals is singing in the rain oh but i want to make it like a darker painful singing in the rain element yeah so there's (laughs) supposed to be this whole rain dance sequence it's much more artistic even it's really i'm really excited because i really get to push myself and like okay well where do we go now and when we're talking about color you know is my executive uh david that really taught me to go there because I tend to make films that are very grounded and very in the real world, real life. So you can play a little bit, but you're not pushing the color that much. Right. And so when we were in color, David was like, you know, I wanted red, but David was like, let's go red, 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 right? <laughs> and <in> yes, <laughs> crimson red. <laughs> and that opening shot of them and all that red, like, where is that red coming from? Does she have a red light in her house like that? No, but it's beautiful. Right. It gets you, you're watching, and nobody wonder where that light's coming from. And David taught me that. And um, so then after I felt more free, um, I was pushing everything. I was like, more blue, more this, more that. <laughs> and so now that I, like, uh, David has helped unlock a part of me uh, to be less restricted and more free in, in color and all of that, I just feel like it's perfect because now I can take that newfound freedom into shadow dance and um, and play more freely and be weird. <laughs> I love it. Yes. And is this a theatrical release or is it going on training or we're oh, we don't yet. we don't know yet. Yeah, okay. yeah. Still in the development. Still in phase. development. Check okay. back with us, girl. Check back. Okay, you gotta come back and talk to us about <laughs> all that. day, all day, every day. I love what you all do. I oh. love that you exist. I love that. Like it's beautiful. I'm here for you all day. Um, anytime, always. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for speaking to us. Yes. Congratulations on the premiere thank of Dragon Mind. I love the title, by the way. Good. Great thank you. That was Hulu. Um, that's one of the experiences that I got to learn is when working with the studio there's certain elements that um you work together on and so there was like a suggestion list of titles and what hulu does is they take it out to test audiences mm-hmm. and like you know coming from indie you ain't got no time or money for test audiences <laughs> so it was really fun to see like oh what do the people like and so jagged mind uh came back and that was the bur- it, girl it was called first date to begin with oh, sounds wow. like a comedy right right all of us even the writer she was like yeah we need to change it. yeah yeah you so, don't think of like a horror thriller no, first date. no. yeah no you don't so jagged yeah. so hulu did a great job yeah awesome jagged mind well thank you so much for talking to us of course appreciate thank it. you i appreciate you for taking the time 
So I am here with Numa Perry, who is the director of The Perfect Find, which is coming out soon on Netflix as of this recording. Really excited to talk to you about this. The last time we spoke, you worked on Jezebel, mm -hmm. which played at South by Southwest. And we're now here at AVFF for The Perfect Find. Now, Jezebel was more of a personal project for you because that was very much your own story, which was part of that narrative. Uh, do you share any of your own experiences in The Perfect Find? Oh, yes. I share <laughs> a lot of my personal experiences in The Perfect Find. And, you know, my wheelhouse has always been about what's personal to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, and, I, and I work from there. That's how I'm able to stay on a project for years because it has that deeper meaning. So when I read The Perfect Find and it was about Jenna, you know, having gone through a breakup and getting fired at the same time, I really related to that. I had a similar shakeup in my life. And on the other side of it, I did find hope. I found love. You know, I got through it and I figured out what the next chapter was for me and so in the script a lot of that was going on you know all the mess of you know this woman has to look at herself and the choices that she's made along the way and you know it's called the perfect find but she's not a perfect woman and she's not making perfect choices and that really pulled me in mm. so, you know what is that you know let's interrogate that mess you know and let's um Let's dive into it a little bit. So that's what we got to do in the movie, and that's really what Gabrielle wanted to do. She wanted to play someone who isn't perfect. Right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, like, really, really not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, and so that's what we wanted. And so I do feel like now we have a perfect movie. <laughs> you know, I'm really, really happy with it, but I think it's because we were, we were okay with the mess. We liked the mess. Mm -hmm. And I think almost everything that I've done has involved some sort of messy love story. Even Jezebel, you know, was a love story between sisters. Yeah. And um, how messy that relationship could be. And this is a love story to rom-coms, but mm -hmm. it's a love story that's very messy. Yeah. I mean, you know, dating your boss's son might not... <laughs> be the best decision <laughs> that you make when you're trying to rebuild your career. It's like, why at the same time? Right. Know? But she wanted the experience and she put her heart first and she put, you know, her <laughs> herself and her fun over the ambition. Yeah. So it's like, what does that look like and feel like? Which one do you choose? Mm, absolutely. You know, in The Perfect Fine, Jenna, a much older woman, falls for Eric, who's mm -hmm. A much younger man. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. In addition to the messiness mm -hmm. of the boss employee relationship, there's also this age gap between right. the two of the these uh, protagonists in the film. So do you find that there's still a stigma attached to an older woman being with a younger man? And does the film seek to break that stigma? Well, I feel like the conversation about generation gap relationships has really evolved. Um, you know, people are looking at it from a lot of different angles now. Um, it can get very, very heated on Twitter, black Twitter especially. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely expect those conversations to be a component of this film's release. As more and more people watch it and they say, you know, is this okay? Is this not okay? And why? Th that's 
I don't have the answer, but that's what I want the film to continue to like ripple affect those conversations. Right. So, you know, yeah, for me it's just about, you know, the generation that we're in now, why are those things more not okay than they were before? It's just taken for granted that a younger woman would be with a much older man and that's just kind of the way that it went but if it went the other way around something weird was going on mm -hmm. if it's an older woman and then a younger man that's weird why are you doing that why would he want to do that and it's like you know you guys are sleeping on you know <laughs> a whole segment of possibility for love you know and so but also is that appropriate and the power dynamics and all of that and yeah, I just feel like this movie is going to continue to raise those questions. The discourse shall go on. Yes. <laughs> and I'm curious to see where it lands. Me too. And so <laughs> many people. I'm curious to see what the discourse will be on social media too. Yeah. Once this comes out and people mm -hmm. see it. How would you describe Darcy, who's played by the great Gina Torres? How would you describe her? Because she's she's not too mean like some of the women that we've seen uh, that's in like these positions of power, which mm -hmm. she, she's in. Um, but she's also someone that's not to be messed with. Right, exactly. And so, you know, what does power really look like? Is power the person that, that's yelling and insulting and, um, you know, just making everyone completely feel unsafe in their environment? Or does power look like someone who knows what they want and it's not afraid to look you in the eye and say, don't cross this line. These are my boundaries. And these boundaries are what helped me build this, the empire that I have. So I look at Darcy as that woman who understands all of those aspects. She's drawn her lines in a very specific way. And um, she's, she's gained strength for very specific reasons. And she's not going to barter that. And she's not going to compromise that for any reason. Definitely not, you know, this woman <laughs> who is valuable to her, who she's competed with for a long time. But she's definitely not going to you know, sidestep for any of her antics. And she knows who she's dealing with. As much as she needs her on her team, she knows who she's dealing with. Mm -hmm. So in talking to Gina Torres about coming on the role, you know, Gina didn't want to just play this, like, very binary, you know, I'm a villain and she's the whatever. And, so I, and I said, we're in good shape because maybe Jenna's the villain. You know how they mm -hmm. say the villain and the real villain, you know? Right. I understand both women side of the story. I understand Darcy to a, a big degree, you know, what you have to do to get to where you are and here comes this person that's always been harmful to you, you know, yeah. whether they intended it or not and now they want something from you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and then they betray you, you, you extend that trust. Well, mm -hmm. I get Darcy, but I also get Jenna, mm -hmm. you know, I get the, well, I fell on my face, I did this, I did that, I'm coming back, I know I have a lot to offer, I know that I'm a valuable person, mm -hmm. um, but I'm probably going to still, like, uh, make some mistakes <laughs> along <laughs> the way, you know, you know, maybe, we tend to do. Yeah, maybe my boundaries are a little looser, so I understand the woman with the empire and the strict boundaries, and I understand the woman he's so romantic at heart and maybe have looser boundaries, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so, I, you know, we were able to really have conversations both with Gina and Gabrielle separate together where they knew that I was rooting for each of them mm. and that so they could really just go for it and let that clash happen. 
you know, and it just gave, you know, Gina's going to bring dimension to every character. She's never going to play something black and white. You know, she's she's really one of our greatest actresses. Thanks. And, um, you know, what I love about this is she got to insert that playfulness, yes. you know, that evil playfulness in it, yeah. you know, while also showing, you know, the gravitas that she brings to every role. And so for that, she's the perfect Darcy. She is. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm rooting I for Darcy, you I, know. <laughs> I really love how nuanced she was because, you know, I, I had a chance to interview her for the junket that had mm-hmm. recently happened. And Isn't she great? She was so great. great to to, yeah. And also, mm-hmm. like, her character, because it's easy to pigeonhole her and compare her to, Miranda Priestley from right. Devil Wears Prada right. or like this Anna Wintour type. Mm-hmm. But she's not quite that character. Right. Well, first of all, she's black. Yes. Indeed. She's Afro-Latina. <laughs> Afro-Latina. Okay. Yes. She speaks Spanish. Right. Okay. And she's the head of an industry that was not created for us, but yet they steal from us all the time. So imagine mm. what she had to go through as a character and as a person you know, at the the actress Gina and the character Darcy, she got it. She understands. Yeah. You know, she's one of our greatest, but how many, you know, barriers has she had, you know, to be who she is? And so how does she continue to hold that space and not let anyone like bring her down any rungs, you know? Mm. So but it's yet she was already there, you know, she's she's already like this great, incredible person. Yeah. Um, but has had to prove herself so many times over. So I feel like she understood all of those layers. That's why it's so nuanced. You know, she was able to bring all of that to the party. She really got it. She did. She did indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I loved it. I loved yeah, seeing her. Yeah, and yeah. I love the outfits, by the oh, way. And then, you know, because she's Spanish speaking, and I did this for also um, Godfrey, the uh, comedian, uh, when I learned he spoke Spanish, I said, put the Spanish in scene you know yeah and so I gave Gina that that free reign I said when I said don't worry it's not like we need to hear every scene in Spanish but if it comes to you just do it and so Mm. she would just you know she would just do that and Mm. I guess so much flavor to the film Mm. and so much reality to the film and she doesn't have to shutter that part of herself or tuck that away she can add that to Darcy. Exactly. You know, so it's like, yeah, she's a bad, she's a bad bee. Yeah. <laughs> and seeing that representation is so important because yeah. you don't see that many roles for Afro-Latina women right. um, in this space. At the head of the game. At the head of the yeah, game, no less. You see roles, mm-hmm. but, you know, she's at the head of the game and she also doesn't have to hide that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so The Perfect Find is all about a woman in her prime and finding love and starting over. And that it's never too late, you know, to kind of pursue what you want in life. Mm -hmm. So would you say that you share the same sentiment with the success that you're currently having in your life and your career at this moment? Yeah, I definitely do. I feel like, you know, when I read the script and I feel like I had just kind of, I was just starting to emerge from, you know, I just, I just met someone, you know, that I'd fallen for. So I, I had that hopefulness, but it was still still felt kind of fresh, the heartbreak and the um, and the feeling of, well, what am I doing with my career? I was so dedicated to this one space for so long. Who am I without that identity? You know, I was really asking myself the same questions and 
Um, you know, now because it takes as long as it takes to make a film, it's like three years later since I first read the film, since I first read the script. Yeah, I kind of feel like <laughs> I'm a Jenna emerging, you know, like, like, yeah, I figured out my next chapter, you yeah. know, and it's still very related to the last chapter, but it's a little different. Yeah. And um, love looks different for me now. And, mm. you know, I, I'm coming out the other side. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's why I, I want people to, you know, take a page from that. But that's, that's really why I felt so connected to the project from Jump. Mhm. Absolutely. I was like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another personal project for you. Yeah. Yeah. So Jenna and Eric, they they come from different worlds, but yet they have more in common as we get to know both of these characters throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so besides the physical attraction, what is it that they both see in one another that they're willing to look past that age gap in their relationship? Mm. Well, I think it's a couple of things. Um, the kind of overriding theme is that they both have this love for classic black film mm-hmm. and, the, you know, the the hidden gems of <laughs> black Hollywood, which is black Hollywood. And, you know, it's not just a general love. Like, they both really deeply love and care for that. So what does that represent? It represents something about their values, that they care about culture in a certain way. They care about history. They care about accomplishments. They care about what we've achieved as as a community mm-hmm. going forward. And those are very strong values to have. That, that's a very connective tissue if you already have the chemistry with someone, right? Right. And you, you discover that connective tissue. It's like those are kind of the threads of what love is made out of, right? You right. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I really wanted to illustrate those moments of, like, even when they talk about the movies, they start – they start feeling those butterflies and then they're next to each other and they already have those butterflies and next thing you know, they're in the bedroom again. Here we go. They're doing it again. You know, I wanted one thing to fuel the next. And I think that the Eric character also sees Jenna as like, um, the side of his mother, Mm. you know, how we will go, we'll, we'll go there. The side of his mother that he never gets to see, like that, the softer side, the side that, that will share their feelings Mm -hmm. more. Um, and that, that was something that he needed, mm. and that's something that he gets from her. Mm. Um, and so, you know, Keith and I would talk a lot about this, and you should interview Keith, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because, yeah, I won't tell all his personal stories, but, you know, he talked about, you know, some of his experiences with people maybe a couple clips older, mm. you know, and... Um, what that felt like for him, you know, and he was yeah. just, you know, so willing to really go there. Um, but I think that, yeah, that's what he's seeing in her and what she's seeing in him <laughs> is, you know, a lot of it is, is the chemistry, the natural chemistry that they have, um, but also a certain freedom that a way she's able to be free with him in a way that uh, she wasn't able to be in her previous relationship. So those are the things that really keep them together, even though it's her boss's son. Wow. Wow. Last question, because I know you've got a premiere to go to soon. (laughs) (laughs) It's going down 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 tonight. Big premiere. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And this is actually not a question related to the perfect fine, but I know that it was reported a while ago that you were connected to an Audre Lorde project oh, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. in development. Is yeah. that still happening? Uh, it's definitely still happening. That's a real passion project of mine. Um, so I was, uh, like, it, you know, in my love of her and her body of work and what she's contributed, uh, I was writing a one-woman show. It's something I wanted to do on stage at first. And then when the pandemic hit, <laughs> um, not only I was I could no longer even go to the class I was going to as I was working on her speeches and things, so it moved into the film space. And it probably would have al- already done that, mm-hmm. um, but at first it was supposed to be a one-woman show that I was going to do different poems and speeches of hers and just kind of, maybe I'll still do it, I don't know, but... I moved into the film space now, and yeah, so we're just kind of figuring out the next moves of that. I'm in conversations with her estate about it still, so um, yeah, coming soon-ish. You know, these projects take forever, Yeah, yeah. and I hate that, um, but it was important. I feel it was important to announce it because um, no one is talking about... We have, we have films about some writers... We've got Truman Capote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, you know, certain, you know, Emily Dickinson yeah. has, you know, movies and TV shows and, you know, Virginia Woolf, you know. Um, but, yeah, I haven't really seen anything about our great black right. literature. Yeah. Our writers, you know, the ones that are actually getting us through, like, the rough days. Exactly. <laughs> and Audre Lorde is really... Um, one that I don't want to be forgotten, and she won't be because her work lives. But a film is another layer of kind of a, not immortality, but an offering, you know, for people to know who she was. It brings a lot of visibility to who she is or who she was and her legacies. Yeah, Yeah, and she deserves that visibility. But, you know, so does Tony, so does, you know, so many... So I'm like, we need film, we need films on all of them. And yeah. I'm also interested in, you know, you think about our writer, and they're like, well, where's the story? What's interesting? It's like, no, they have interesting lives, lives. you know? Yeah. Like, Intazaki, like, her life. Intazaki yeah. would actually go create drama. I mm. read this about her. She would go, like, create drama between people. I don't know. Was that, was that like a sociopathic thing? I don't know. But <laughs> so that she could then write about it. You wow. Know? Like she, wow. She, I would say that she would lean even more into experiences that would pop up because that is the material she would then be pulling from to write. So these writers had really interesting lives. And, you know, they were living it up. And when you go back and look at their documentaries, you're like, oh, they were, they were, they were wild. That's were movie doing, material. That's movie <laughs> material. You know, you see yeah. that Toni Morrison documentary, and you're like, oh, Toni was awesome, mm-hmm. you know? And, yeah, and, and so was Audrey, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking to Black Girl Nerds. I really appreciate it. Perfect Fine was such a beautiful film. And congratulations to you and your career. Thank you so much. I'm so happy. Thank you. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.